scripture, the passage for today is Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. Once again, it's Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. Let me read that for us. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadog, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Ishana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hadash, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. We are continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah today. Obviously, last week we took the week off from the study, but we're back in Nehemiah today. And just to bring us all back onto the same page, you remember that Nehemiah heard that the walls around Jerusalem had been broken down, that its gates had been burned with fire. And this news upset him so badly that he went to the king, the one that he served, and he asked leave of his official duties. He then took a thousand-mile journey out to the city of Jerusalem. He left the cultural center of Persia to come to this broken down backwater that was on the edge of the empire. And the reason for doing that was because God had put something on his heart, something to do for the people of Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall. Now, initially, it sounds on the surface like it's for reasons of security, but it's for much more than that. It's so that the people of God would have their own identity so that they would have their own distinctiveness from the rest of the nations. This is part of why we're studying the, the book, because we want to learn how do we also then work in, among the people of God. Nehemiah arrives at Jerusalem. He unpacks this desire with the people who are living there, and they embrace what was on his heart. They made it part of their own hearts. They got ready to build, and it brings us now to chapter 3 of Nehemiah, this very long 
extremely detailed list of who built what and where they did so. And it's a list of names that are mostly all unfamiliar, most of them unpronounceable. David did a great job, very impressed. We had a little pool how many he would miss. <laughs> he said, it doesn't matter, you won't know anyway. <laughs> These guys are doing things that you and I have no idea how to do. They're setting doors and bolts and bars in place. I don't even know what some of those things are. It's a list of places, various gates, various landmarks, that the scholars and experts cannot locate because those are just lost in, the, in time. The whole chapter is repetitive, it's mind-numbing. It's a list that I often skip over when I'm reading through the book of Nehemiah. You don't have to admit that, but I know you do too. We read less than half of it today. I didn't think you could take any more. And you wonder, I wonder, why? Why is this here? Out of all the things that God could tell you about his universe, about himself, about yourself, why would you be interested in this? Okay, I get that the wall was important, but this level of detail about the actual process? Nobody throughout the rest of scripture refers to this chapter again. There are no great heroes of the faith in this chapter. There are no villains. Might have been nice if you had sort of participated. Might have been nice to be listed. That way you can be commemorated. Your grandkids can know it's kind of nice for you. But why would you preserve this in scripture for all of God's people for all time? Scripture is very sacred. It's very important. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And you think, Nehemiah 3? This is profitable? How is this profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction? How is it profitable for training in righteousness? Now, to start to answer that question, first you have to back up and you have to remember what God is actually doing by giving us scripture. And the thing that he's trying to do first and foremost is tell you something about himself. He's trying to tell you, here's what I'm like. Here's what my character is like. Here's what my values are. And you realize he has to do that because we can't understand that any other way. If he does not communicate that, then he's just, he, he's invisible to us. So when you read this chapter, you remind yourself that the most important thing that it teaches you is not about the people, not about what they did, and not about where they did it. The most important thing is that it teaches you about God, that he knows who they are, that he knows what they did, that he knows where they did it. And when you start to understand that, you realize that this passage is teaching you that God remembers that what his people do is incredibly important to him, that he marks it down, that he doesn't forget those things. It's true not only of people 2,500 years ago, it's also true of you. That if nobody ever knows you outside of this room and outside of your small group of acquaintances, if nobody ever knows you, if nobody ever hears about you, if nobody hears about what you've done or, or about where you've been, your God does. Your actions still matter. They're meaningful. And they're meaningful because God remembers them. In other words, what is this chapter doing? It's pointing us to the answer for the search of, that we all have for meaning, the search for living meaningful lives. We all have that longing, that longing to know that what we do matters, that somewhere between the diapers and, and the driving and the laundry and the studying and the dirty dishes and the exams, 
somewhere in that nine to five routine that for most everybody is at what, eight to seven routine, that somewhere our life is meaningful, that it's not wasted, that you are, yourself are a worthwhile person, that what you have done in this life is meaningful. One of the ways that you know that, that you're a worthwhile person, that you do meaningful things, is when someone else notices you. When they notice, they mark somehow, and they are communicating that what you did is remembered and who you are is remembered. This is a very important part of life. It starts very early. You have a birthday party, and what are your parents doing? They're telling you in that moment, I remember you. You are worthwhile. And it goes on from there as you grow up. You go to school and you get what? You get a report card. What's the report card? It's a way of saying what you have done should have is meaningful and that we notice that and we recognize that. You get certificates, you get awards to mark achievements at school, this outside validation of who you are and what you've done. Parents bring flowers to their child's recitals, to their performances. They take their kids out to eat afterward. Why, what are they doing? They are marking those moments. They're giving them an external validation that says, you did something worthwhile. You did something important, something meaningful. You are worthwhile. You are remembered. See that take, taking place here in Nehemiah 3. Realize that you never outgrow that need for validation. You get a positive annual review. What do you want to do? You, you want to share that with somebody. You want somebody else to know that. It's meaningful to you. It says that you have done a job well. You want others to know when, when the company sends out an email and your name is there, and, and it's for a good reason that your name is there, and you want other people to share in that with you. You let your friends know about an award banquet, a Lifetime Achievement Award. All these things from outside that come and assess your life and say, you count. What you did is important. What you did is noticed. It's remembered. But think with me for just a moment. What is it that makes that award or trophy valid? What is it that makes that celebration valid? What validates the validator? What validates the validation? See, if I get recognized by an organization that I don't respect, then that award is not meaningful. That award is meaningless. The recognition, the remembrance is only meaningful if the one who's doing the remembering is worthwhile, is meaningful. So how do you know then that they're meaningful? On what basis do you decide that those things that you got are actually worthwhile, that are actually worth you being proud of? What are your options? Well, you can start with yourself. You can say, well, th those people that have said those things about me, I, I like them. I like my parents. I like my school. I like my employer. I respect them. Therefore, what they are remembering is valid. In other words, you rest your validation on yourself. You enter into the world and you say, I'm the arbiter of what is meaningful. And since I think this is meaningful, when others acknowledge it, their remembrance is valid. It's circular. It reinforces what I already believe. But I come to this world and I, I, I say, basically, I approve their message about me. Now, you can do that. Lots of people do that. But how many times throughout history have people done things that they approved of, things that they sincerely believed in, things that we, they thought were meaningful, but when we look back on them, we wonder, how, how could they have been that blind? 
to think that that was a good thing? How, how could they have been that morally corrupt? Pick the big ones, and it makes the point immediately. Concentration camps, slavery, racism, industrial pollution, insider trading, things that people have done, things that people have defended doing, and yet things that when you get just a little distance from them, you look at that and you think, that, that's just plain wrong. Those are things you do not want to be remembered for. Those are things that you assess as invalid, not worthwhile, things that don't contribute to a meaningful life. In other words, just because you think something is worthwhile doesn't make it worthwhile. You could be deceived just as easily as any guard in a concentration camp, deceived just as much as any slave owner. You look at people who live those lives and you say, that was meaningless, that was a waste. So you realize that you're going to need something bigger than your own self if you're going to live a life that is truly meaningful. Think, okay, well, what, what's bigger than you? Well, take that next size out. It, it's the people surrounding you. It's, it's the, your society that you live in. And you say, okay, it, 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 my validation depends on what society thinks is good and right. But you realize that's not any better because one society values things that are different from another. They're variable. Each society itself changes what it va values. Some people have noted that right now in the West, we're living in something called a moral revolution. It's a time where the norms of our society are changing so rapidly that what was just a few years ago thought radical is now relatively tame. So if you tie your understanding of a meaningful life to your society, you're going to be chasing meaning and validation all of your life. And in the end, you're going to be remembered for things that people no longer approve. You're going to be just like Germany, looking back on the concentration camps, just like America, looking back on slavery. In other words, if you want to live a truly meaningful life, to have something that is lasting, not open to self-deception, not open to being overturned, it's not going to be from a value that you impose onto the world. Instead, you're going to have to have something bigger than that. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to satisfy that longing that you have inside to live a life that counts. You're going to chase things that keep moving away from you. You're not big enough. Your society is not big enough to live a meaningful life. You need something greater. Now, obviously, what's greater than the society, greater than this world, it, we're moving towards saying it's got to be God. But I could imagine somebody saying, well, let, 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 let me challenge you on that. Why, why does it have to be? Let's suppose that, that there is no God. Let's suppose that the universe just sort of happened to produce life. Let's suppose that there's just this accidental collection of events, that it just is, that there is no inherent meaning in the universe. Instead, it's up to us to generate our own meaning. And I think if someone says that, I think it's very fair to turn around and say, okay, if that's the case, let's, let's assume that. If that's the case, then give me something that's big enough, big enough reason for me to get out of bed in the morning. Give me something that would actually move me and make me interested in living this kind of a life. What's, what, what's the point of living? Why should I go to school? Why should I go to work? And some people will come back and they'll say, so that you can have a good job, make a lot of money. At which point you extend the argument, and you say, well, for what? What do I need a good job and good money for? So that I can eat? And do what? Go back to work? So now I'm going to be in this endless cycle. I eat to work, and I work so that I can eat, and I do that until I die? 
That doesn't sound meaningful, that sounds pointless. Other people come back and they say, well, it's so that you can have great ideas and make great contributions to society. So, okay, let's extend that argument for a moment. If my life is meaningless, it has no inherent meaning, then society is equally meaningless, and anything that I do for society is equally meaningless. In the end, when we have the great implosion, anything that I've done is just going to evaporate. That's not going to be enough to get me out of bed in the morning. So other people will come back and they'll say, well, it's so that you can spend time with friends, so that you can afford to have a family. But if my life doesn't have meaning, my friends' lives don't have any meaning, my children's lives don't have any meaning, my spouse has no meaning. If their lives are meaningless, then any interactions with them are also meaningless. I can't do anything good for someone who's living a meaningless life. I also can't do anything bad for anyone who's living a meaningless life. I can't make their life better. I really can't make their life worse because their life doesn't mean anything. I have no way of actually saying that Germany was bad, that America was bad. I'm locked in this world where I have no reason to get out of bed in the morning. I have no reason to invest in my own life. I have no reason to invest in anyone else's life. All you have to do is push people a little bit to actually think out the implications of what is they're, they're, they're proposing, and you realize you can't account for why people get out of bed in the morning. And yet everybody does. Everybody has people that they love, that they care about. They know that those relationships are meaningful. They know that it's worth investing. They know that it's worth doing good things. They know that it's worth not doing bad things. They know that having a legacy that you can be remembered for is a good thing, that you want to live a meaningful life, that there's a reason for doing so. But you can't get there by assuming that God is not part of the picture. You can only get there if you are willing to follow the scripture, if you're willing to take what it says is true, that outside of this universe, there is a very personal God who has taken his personalness and stamped it into the universe so that we want to be connected and we care about being connected. And this very personal God does what? He cares about his people and his creatures in that universe, and he remembers. If you want to have a meaningful life, you have to line up with the things that he remembers well. That's what Nehemiah 3 is all about. So as we study this this morning, we want to understand a couple things. Number one, if the only way I can have a meaningful life is that God remembers things well of me, what is it that God thinks is worth remembering? What's the nature of those kinds of things? What kinds of things does he validate? Number one, what are the kinds of things that he thinks are worth remembering? Number two, what are the people like that he remembers? Who does he remember? What are their characteristics? What are their distinctives? Because if we can understand who he remembers well, then we have a shot at being some of those people that he remembers well. So number one, what does God think is worth remembering? Number two, what are the people like that he remembers? It's the point of Nehemiah 3. Taking number one, what does God think is worth remembering? Well, clearly in this passage, it involves doing something that allows his kingdom to be built so that his people can actually live out their faith in a community of faith, so that God is going to be able to be the center of their world and so they'll have the ability to treat others the way that God's treated them. That's what it means to build up God's kingdom. 
And as you read through chapter 3, you realize everybody's doing that, with one exception. There's one time there that you hear, out of all that long list of names, one mention of people who are not building. It's verse 5. You read there that next to them, to those other workers, next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The Hebrew for would not stoop to serve indicates a, a stubborn kind of pride, a, a sense that this work was beneath them, that they did not think that it was meaningful work, that it was not worth doing. And God remembers. He remembers what? That they were not on board with what he was doing. And he's telling you in that moment, here's how I evaluate lives. Are you on board with what I'm doing and building up my people, or are you not on board with what I'm doing and building up my people? See, he doesn't come to the nobles and evaluate them by asking, well, how big was your house? How many political connections did you have? How successful were you? Instead, he asks, did you work with me in what I was doing in the world? Did you use your house, regardless of its size, to build up my people? Did you engage the people that you know, whether they were important or unimportant, did you engage the people that you knew for my kingdom's sake or for your own? Did you use the success that I gave you to further your ends or to further mine? He wants to know, did you work with me in what I was doing in the world or did you work against me? Do you ha have my desires on your heart? Did you make them your own? The nobles clearly don't. Thankfully, they're a small minority in this chapter, but they come with a serious warning. You want to be people who are remembered for working with God, for the sake of seeing his people better off after you've been with them than they were before. It's really important. This is what you want to give your life to, not what the nobles gave their lives to. Now, having said that, you start to see two different groups of people throughout this chapter, two different ways that you can approach what God is doing. For instance, there are a number of people who live outside of Jerusalem who have come over to help. They're from all over the, the area. They're from Jericho, chapter, uh, verse 2. They're from Tekoa, verse 5. From Gibeon, verse 7. From Mizpah, in verses 7, 15, 19. From Zenoa, verse 13. From Beth Hekarem in verse 14, Beth Zur in verse 16, and Kyla verses 7 to 18. They're from all over. Now, why would they do that? Why would you come to help build up a wall in Jeru around Jerusalem if you weren't part of Jerusalem? If it's strictly for security of Jerusalem, it does not impact you if you're living outside of Jerusalem. You're only going to come and build that wall up if you can see beyond the wall, if you can see what the wall is actually protecting and what the wall is actually guarding. You're only going to do that if you see that this is the city where God has chosen to make his presence known. That here is where his temple is. And that here is where you can have your sins forgiven through sacrifices in the temple. You have to see something that is actually worth doing if you're going to come from farther away and work to build up this wall. In other words, these are people who get the big picture. They understand the world in this theological framework, this higher level philosophical way. That They understand this is what God is doing in the world at this time, and if they want to be part of that, they have to actually go to where that is in order to take part in it. 
That's one group of people. Here's the second group of people. They're not like that. They're more concrete. They see particular needs, and in seeing those needs, they're moved to action. A couple of different times in the scripture, four, four different times in this passage, you come across people who are working on the wall, and you're told that they're working on the wall because they live near the wall. Verses 10, 23, 28, 30. They're working within sight of where they lived. So some people come to work on the wall because, from far away because they understand the big picture. Other people act because they can see the need. It's literally right outside their door. They're tripping over it every time they leave the house. Two different approaches that end up working for the same thing. Now let me be really kind, kind of clumsy here, kind of simplistic. What is it that they're doing? Two different approaches united by doing one thing. What is it that they're doing? They're putting one stone on top of another on top of another. Why? Why are they doing that? And the answer is very obvious. It's because stones need to be put one on top of another on top of another. It's just what needs to be done. They're doing what needs to be done. Realize that sometimes we make serving the Lord, working in his church, far more complicated than it really is. Sometimes it's simply a matter of doing what needs to be done. John chapter 13, Jesus takes a basin of water, starts washing his disciples' feet. Why? Because their feet are dirty. <laughs> it needs to be done. Somebody has to do it. So Jesus steps up and he does what needs to be done. That's what serving is. Building the kingdom of God, building up the church, doing things that are eternally meaningful. Most of the time, that simply means you do what needs to be done because it's right in front of you. But you do it in such a way that God says, I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to remember that for all eternity because the way that you did that is exactly the way that I would do it if I were here in your place. Now, sometimes that service is unstructured. It's a one-off conversation you have with somebody that you run into. It's inviting someone over for a meal so that you can get to know them a little bit better. It's offering to pray for someone right there when they say, here's the need that I'm wrestling with in my life. It's helping somebody move. It's taking a meal to somebody in need. It's unstructured. It happens as the need arises. Other times, that ministry, that, that service, is more structured. You see, you see that in the various ministries that we have here at Renewal Mainline. Things like our community groups, our, uh, the Renewal College Fellowship, our youth and children's ministries, various committees. It's people who come together, who organize those, host them, lead them, in order to what? In order to help us grow together in our faith. If that's something you feel that the Lord's putting on your heart and stirring up in you as we go through this study, come see me. We have needs. We have places where people can slot in. See one of the other pastors. See one of the other elders. Let's talk about that. Those are some of the structured ministries. Let me talk about one. David referenced it earlier that we don't talk about very much. A number of you have gone through the discipleship groups, uh, but for, for a lot of you, it, that's still a structured ministry that's a little bit below the radar. So if we think about the, the primary ways that we want to serve the church, and we think about community groups, we also think about discipleship groups. What are community groups? Community groups let us build relationships with each other. They let us wrestle through what is God doing here at Renewal Mainline. They're an opportunity to see how does the gospel impact our church's culture. Discipleship groups are more individual, more personalized. Asking the question, how does the gospel impact you personally? How does it impact you individually? 
as David said, they're made up of groups of three to four people. They are designed to take someone wherever you are on your spiritual journey to that next step, whatever that next step is. So you might have been walking with the Lord for several years. You might not even be sure what the Christian faith is all about. But the questions that Pastor Luke's put together in this study are designed to take you to that next step, whatever it is. Think, okay, well, who can benefit from these groups? It's, it's very easy. If you want to grow in your faith, you should look into the, one of the groups. Or if you and I were to sit down and I was to ask you, what do you think God's been doing in your life in the last month? Where do you see God taking you over the last several months? And, he, and you were to say to me, I, I really don't know. Or I'm not sure that I see him doing much of anything. Then maybe a discipleship group would be helpful for you to sort of move that process to the next step. Last Sunday of the month, Pizza Sunday, February 23rd, Luke's going to be holding a class. By going to the class, you're not obligating yourself to be part of a group. You're just saying, I'd like to know a little bit more about them. So go ahead. If you're interested, sign up through the Google form. Those are the more structured ministries of the church. What's the goal of them? It's to prepare us for the unstructured times in our lives, the times where we stumble over a need that we didn't see coming, that we're not really sure what to do with. But because we've had some development, uh, people have poured into our lives, we have some sense, some idea of what to do with that. I'll give it just a couple examples. Somebody from the community group that I'm part of was really struck as we're going through this study by how Nehemiah was praying. And he was praying on a regular basis, and, and this guy and I are, are sitting down talking together. He's not one of the leaders of the group, but he's saying, I, I, I feel like I need to do that. And do you think the other guys in the group might be interested? Sends out an email, a number of us get together, and we just had a great time in prayer this week. He came with several Bible passages, led us through. It was very simple, very easy, and profound. A couple guys last night said, yeah, that was one of the most meaningful uh, parts of our last week. What's this guy done? He's seen a need. And he's done something in such a way that God remembers. The ladies in our group have been deciding, you know what, we need deeper relationships with each other. And so they've been getting, sort of trying to work out, here's a time that we can actually spend together, uh, just us, not with the guys, but just us so that we can know each other better. I've heard of other people, people who have started a, a book kind of conversation with several other people so they can, in, in that way, start discipling each other. Lots of other stories throughout the entire church. What are those stories? They're small ways that we enter in. We say, here's a need. Here, Lord, you've put something on my heart. I'm now going to respond in such a way that God says, I'm going to remember that. That's what you want to spend your life doing. You want to see where those opportunities are, and you want to enter into them so that you also are being remembered for all eternity for something that's meaningful. So first, God remembers what people do to make his people stronger. Secondly, who are these people? What can we say about their characteristics? Well, as you go through that list, you realize this is a real mix. Okay, the nobles of Tekoa refused to be involved, but a lot of other leaders were involved. They served alongside the people that they led. The people who worked came from a very wide variety of backgrounds. You learn that the high priest is out there, that fellow priests were there, that Levites were involved, verses 1, 17, and 28. You learn that there are goldsmiths and perfumers, not the first guys that you think about when you're thinking, who's the, the wall builders around here? Verse 8, both of those uh, groups are out there serving. Temple servants, verse 26. Merchants, verse 32. 
whole variety of different backgrounds, artisans, but you never hear about stonemasons. You never hear about carpenters. You think those would be the ones that I'd really want to know about if I was going to build a wall. That's how I'd approach building a wall. And God says, no, I, I have a different evaluation. I'm not looking for people who are highly skilled and who have expertise. I'm looking for people who are willing. I'm looking for people who want to build as much as I want to build. That's what's important to me. You realize also that he doesn't really care what your station in life is. Verse 12, next to him, this other person, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Now we come from an egalitarian culture. Men and women are, are on an equal footing. So this verse can slide right past. We don't even notice that he and his daughters are building. Nehemiah is writing in a very patriarchal world. And God just said, who's important in my kingdom? It's the people who build. It's not your gender. It's everybody. And I remember everybody for what they do. No one is excluded. Everybody's got a part. Doesn't matter how important or unimportant your society thinks you are. God thinks you're necessary. He's got a place for you. And he's got something for you to do. And so all these people are working side by side. There's a cadence that takes place throughout this chapter. Nehemiah keeps saying, and next to them. And next to them, these other guys built. And next to them, these other guys. And next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. And you get this picture of unity, of people coming together from various backgrounds, all working side by side for a single common cause. He's giving you a picture of what the church is. Leaders and laity, priests and people, artisans of many kind, men and women, Wonderful people all gathered together to work on the wall. And one guy you don't expect, somebody with a really sketchy past. Verse 11, Malchijah. Malchijah, the son of Harim. Now, I've never heard of Malchijah, but it's actually the second time that he shows up in Scripture. If you look historically in the book of Ezra about a little bit more than a decade earlier than this time, you page through, you find him in a long list of names in chapter 10, verse 31. And in the book of Ezra, that's a list of shame. It's a list of men who married foreign wives, considered a huge sin because those wives had not converted to worshiping the one true God. They kept their own cultures and raised their families in them which meant that these men in Ezra 10 are not very serious about their relationship with the Lord, faithless to the God who called them to be his people. When Ezra hears about this, he literally rips his clothes, pulls his hair out, pulls his beard out. He's that upset. Why? Because this is one of the sins that the Israelites committed that got them kicked out of Jerusalem in the first place. It's the sin of rejecting God in favor of embracing someone that God made, rejecting God in order to embrace an image of God. It's the sin of a guy thinking, God is not all that amazing, he's not all that wonderful, he's not all that glorious, at least not nearly as much as this woman is. It's the sin of idolatry. Ezra is not upset because of some ethnic classism or some kind of racism. He's upset over the faithlessness of the men who are marrying these women. He's upset because it's apostasy. 
It's rejection of God. It's rejection of all that God stood for. It's serious sin. And yet, our God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. Grace was offered to the men who had done this. They could turn back to God and repent. It wasn't easy. It cost a lot. This man, Malkaija, was one of the ones who had done so. And what do you discover? You discover about a decade later, there's a place for him to serve, working to advance God's kingdom. Absolutely glorious. Very confusing. You think, how is it possible for him to serve? His past is a mess. He's a man who grew up among the people of God. He had all of the advantages of living among God's people, and he threw them all away. Messed up his own life, but he didn't just mess himself up. He messed up the people around him. Got involved with somebody that he should not have been involved with. And he confused the picture of God that she might have had. Messed up the picture of God that she had. He made her think that God's holiness, it's not that big a deal. God's really not all that serious. God's certainly not that glorious. He's not that satisfying. He's not that fulfilling. You can easily find substitutes for him. Communicated sin is a little thing. Messed up her view of God. Messed up their children if they had any. Confused anyone else who was watching. Lived the life of a hypocrite, but tried to tell people, oh, it's okay, what I'm doing is fine. You think, why can Malchijah be included here? Ezra's clear, he repented, he turned away from what he was doing. But he's done incredible damage with that faithlessness. He's done damage to the people of God. Damage to this lady that he married. Damage to any kids involved. Damage to himself. Why should he even be allowed near the wall? Much less allowed a part in building it. It's because it's not just any wall. It's not just a wall of protection around any city. It's a wall that goes around Jerusalem, around the place where God has caused his presence to dwell, the place where his temple is, the place where sacrifices are offered for sin, the place where God forgives faithlessness, the place where sinners are not forgotten they're remembered, but they're not remembered for their sin. They're remembered for their work in building, for restoring the kingdom of God. It's the place where God accepts sacrifices, substitutes for sin that do what? That foreshadow the real substitute that's coming, Jesus. Jesus was captured by the big picture need of God's people. He came from further away than anyone else to do something about it. And he came and he made his home here so that he could not open his eyes without seeing the need and tripping over it all the time. He saw it in the crowds that swamped him every time he entered into a town. He saw it in the crowds that flooded out to him in deserted places. And each time Jesus simply did what needed to be done. He fed people who were hungry, healed people who were sick, freed people who were oppressed, taught people who needed to learn. The needs were obvious, so he did what needed to be done. He made people strong who were weak. And for doing all that work, he was forsaken. Cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? 
the only one who should have been remembered was in danger of being forgotten. It's what Isaiah the prophet said about Jesus long before his birth. In Isaiah 53, verse 8, we read, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? As for his generation, it's tricky to translate. It's, it's actually a way of saying, as for his descendants, and it's talking about how there wouldn't be any descendants. That's how the verse is unpacked in the New Testament. That in order for you to be remembered, he had to be stricken for your transgression, for your sin. He had to be cut off. He had to be forgotten. That's the price so that Malchijah was able to work. That's what it costs for you to be able to work. For you to be remembered, for you to have a life that's meaningful, it meant that Jesus would have to die. But then Isaiah goes on, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. He was stricken. He was cut off. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He could easily have been forgotten, and Isaiah says, but he won't be. Somehow, after being cut off, having no descendants to remember him, somehow, after making an offering for guilt, he would have offspring. He would have life after death. And he would have descendants. People connected to him, relating to him, people who would now be remembered for all eternity. Remembered not for their past sins, but remembered because now they have meaningful things that they can do in life. When that truth penetrates your heart, goes out of your mind, it's no longer a philosophical commitment, it moves into your heart, you'll go out and you'll build. Joyfully, not to make a name for yourself, but because wherever this great God is, that's where you want to be too. And on top of all the rest of the things that he's given to you, he says, I'm going to remember that for all eternity. You can have a life that is meaningful and it's worthwhile. Let's pray. Our God, you have won for us an amazing salvation. Lord, you have rescued us from a meaningless life. You've rescued us from rebellion. Lord, you have brought us to life. You've given us great things to do. Lord, open our eyes. You've said that the fields are white for harvest. They're ready. You've said, Lord, that there are things that your people need. Lord, your people are doing that. They're rising up. They see those needs. Lord, open their eyes more. Let them see like you saw. Let us enter into those moments with the same grace and the same mercy that you've entered into our lives. And let us be delighted, Lord, to actually have the opportunity to serve well. In Jesus' name, amen.